Well, welcome to Redeemer. We are still in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's nice to see everyone. Uh, it, it, it took us a little while to make the choice to close last week. Um, I, yeah, I've never had to make a decision like that. It was quite something. I, I, I didn't know what <laughs> what's the criteria. And uh, finally, Pastor Hatcher from Trinity, he was talking to me, and he said, listen, don't over-spiritualize this, man. Just close the church. <laughs> so it's nice to be back with everyone. I'm, I'm not going to read... Um, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, again, because they're long, and we just had them read for us. And I think it's a story that if you've, if you've read the Gospels, you know uh, fairly well. It's this very bizarre one where Jesus comes to this land. There's this crazy person living in the tombs who's possessed by a legion of demons. He sends them into the pigs. The pigs all drown in the sea. Everyone's terrified. They send Jesus away, and he leaves. He doesn't explain anything. <laughs> he doesn't teach anything. Uh, and, and that's it. And then he moves on. It's a very strange story. So hopefully this morning we come to understand it a little better. And to that end, let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this, your Sabbath day, your service, your church, your word. And we pray, Lord God, that as um, you open it to us today, that we would open our hearts to you, that you would renew our affections, that you would restore our faith, that you would heal and cleanse us, that you would comfort us as only you can. We thank you, and we praise you, and, you, and we pray in the name of your Son. Amen. Now, this particular story in chapter 5 is the most elaborate the most elaborate story in this entire gospel other than the Passion Week. No other single story has this much detail. No other single story covers this many verses. Uh, it's 20 verses. Next week's sermon is going to cover two stories that actually takes place in the same number of verses. So th- this story covers a lot. I mean, there's a ton of information that is given here. Now, the, the only other time Mark gives this much information is in Jesus' Passion Week. So that would lead one to believe that it's important. <laughs> it, 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 like before in chapter 4, he finally tells us some of the things that Jesus is teaching, and if he's going to take the time to do that, it must be important. If he's going to take the time to give us this many details, the details must be important which is fascinating because Jesus doesn't explain anything. We, we are literally just in a movie theater eating popcorn, watching this take place, wondering what is going on. But there's, it, it, it's got to be a big deal. <laughs> it, it's gotta be, there's got to be more to it than what is on the surface. Now, there are, there's already been one exorcism in, in the synagogue back in chapter 1, and so this is the second. This is the second one. The place that they're in is called the Decapolis. Now, Deca is Greek for ten, Polis is Greek for city, and so it's the the region of the ten cities. That's what it's called, the Decapolis. After the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC, the country was divided up between his sons. Philip got the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, but to the southeast, where this story takes place, it had never been a Jewish territory. It was not chopped up with all the rest of Herod's property. It is in the possession of the Romans. The populace always knew that the Jews regarded them as a bunch of unclean reprobates. That's the first thing to get straight. That's the first thing to get straight. This area, right, when the Jews come across from the sea to visit them, they know that the Jews pretty much hate them. The fact that the Jews go there at all is kind of surprising because it's a dark place. There aren't synagogues there. There aren't Jews there. It is in, it, it's all the Gentiles from that area were collected into these ten cities. This is sort of like where they all fled there 
to live there after Israel had taken over all of the land, and they've remained there ever since. So this area is not exactly a popular destination for Jews. <laughs> and when Jews go there, they're not exactly super popular. Graveyards, okay, we're going to go down some several level, levels here. This is a dark land where Jews don't go. On top of that, the place where the guy lives, who we're going to meet here in a minute, he lives in, gra- in the graveyard. Now, in, when you think graveyard in this story, how many of you guys, like myself, think of like a bunch of pillars, right, a bunch of tombs, like up on a hill, and the guy's like out there sleeping like amongst them? That's weird. That would be weird. But in those days, they were actually caves in the hills. So they would bury people underground. It's a lot easier to do that than to dig the ground. Right? You just find a cave, and you start keeping dead bodies there, and, and that's where they, li- they live. The dead live there. And then that way they're far away from where the living live. Seems straightforward. Okay? Now this makes a little bit more sense. So the guy doesn't just live like amongst a bunch of headstones. The guy lives in a cave, right? and he wakes up every morning, and there are all the bones of all these dead people, like on shelves in this area. That's what it looks like, like a crypt. For a Jew, contact with the dead or with graves or anyone who's even been near a grave or a dead body makes them very unclean. You cannot come, you cannot touch a person or come near a person who's been near the dead because it makes you unclean. The man who rushes out to meet Jesus is about as unclean as you get because he's living in tombs in a land that is regenerate or unregenerate. He's living in a dark land in the caves of the dark land. It's like he lives, you couldn't get further from the temple than this guy. Right? You cannot get further than a clean Jew worshiping in a synagogue than this man living in a dark land, living in the tombs. Now, for the century or so before Jesus' time, the whole area had been overrun by Romans. The legions had marched in and it had taken over. And as they did everywhere from Britain to Egypt, whoever got in their way was crushed. A few people, like local tradesmen, tax collectors, prostitutes, as always, did very well with the army. Right? They're the only ones that are really doing well with the Romans in the neighborhood. The Jews saw them as the enemy, these legions. They considered them Satan incarnate. Some people found that they were gripped not only by the evil force internally, but externally. So, they, so imagine the Jews coming to this land, and they're like, oh, look, a demon-possessed guy living where the Romans live. Shocker. Of course, right? This, is, this guy is just representative of everybody who lives here. So what this guy who comes out to meet them is exactly what most of the Jews think of everybody who lives in this area. They all must be these dead, unclean, dark, in, like demon-possessed people. So this whole setup here, when you slow it down and you think about it for a moment, it, it's very, very, very um, full of conflict. There's all kinds of conflict here. And nobody has to say anything. Just this guy rushing down out of the tombs towards these Jews would, if I were the 12, make me back up a little bit into the sea. Because what is this guy going to do? If he gets too near me, I can't go to synagogues anymore. But here's Jesus just marching up the hill from the boat. He doesn't seem daunted by this guy at all. The man possessed by the demon legion is a metaphor for the whole darkened, Roman-filled, unclean area. So all of this that I'm pointing out now leads to, I think, a lot of the misunderstanding about what this story is about. Because at face value, you're like, okay, there is a demon-possessed unbeliever full of legion, and he looks just like the land, a demon-possessed land full of legions, 
the Roman legions. And you're like, okay, I see what, I, I see what's gonna happen. This is like a metaphor for Jesus coming to the dark land and destroying the Romans. So, so far, what you see is, is you see a setup for the narrative that the Jews already believe about the Messiah, about him coming and crushing their enemies, freeing them from the Romans. You see the setup in the story that they're, everyone who's reading it from that point of view is going to be very much misled by what they read here. And when you, you hear sermons about this, that people turn it into sermons like that, right? What, what eventually happens? Well, God, God does eventually cast out all the demons and, and, and bring light to the dark land and destroy the legions of the Romans. He does eventually do all of that. And so people turn this into that kind of story. But that actually isn't what the story is about at all. So the story is so much more complicated than that. It's actually much deeper than that. And it's full of that many metaphors, but not those metaphors. All of those metaphors I've, I've used now is distracts us from what the story is actually about. So what is the story actually about? Well, I'm going to now walk through it. And then at the end, we'll decide together as a group <laughs> what the story is actually about. But first things first. Verse 1 and 2, Jesus is getting out of a boat. Now, a careful reader, what boat is he getting out of? Well, the boat that they had just been cruising the, the Galilean Sea by night in, in which they were attacked by a storm, in which Jesus terrifies all of his followers by silencing the storm. Okay, Mark, this is how Mark works. He's clipping right along. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is teaching in a boat. By the end of chapter 4, he's, he's then sailing in the same boat across the sea. Chapter 5 starts, he's getting out of that same boat. So if you read this, these chapters back to back, this whole thing is all, it's two days. It's two days. Now, whether it was actually exactly two days, I actually don't know. Right? I don't know. The way that Mark is telling the story, that's the key that we have to pay attention to. This is bang, bang, fast. Jesus is teaching a whole bunch of people, then they're fighting a storm at night, and now he's going on land, he's fighting some, by sea and by land, Jesus is going around conquering all the unbelievers. He gets out of the same boat. He's been in the boat for more than 24 hours. Now, what does he meet when he, when he makes landfall? <laughs> when he actually gets out of the boat, what greets him? What's the first thing to greet him? Mark alone gives a vivid account of the man's condition. He's the only gospel author who tells us some details about the guy who's living in the tombs. He had been chained and beaten as if he, as if he were a wild animal. People were unable to tame him. So imagine... Right? We can't actually imagine a guy like this, right? Some guy who, who just can't be controlled. I think some of us have teenagers like that, right? It feels like it anyway. No matter what we do, we cannot control this guy. But we live in a world like this, right? We, right? You put a guy in jail, he gets out of jail, what's he do? He goes right back to doing what he was doing before. You put a guy in jail, and while he's in jail, he, can, he, get, he breaks out of jail, he commits more crimes. I mean, th this guy cannot be controlled by society. Nobody can control him. They tie, they tie chains around him, he breaks them. He puts shackles on him, he breaks them. And so what they do is like, you know, we got to just get this guy out of here. We have no solution for this guy. So we're going to take him out and we're going to make him live in the tombs. At least there, he's not going to hurt anybody. Well, and, and just, well, what's, what's there on the, on the hill across from them? Well, all the pigs. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a pig farm. I've been to a pig farm. My uncle owns a pig farm. And, yeah, just think about it what 2,000 pigs smells like. <laughs> I, I remember I, the first time I was ever at the pig farm, I'm standing there and I'm thinking, you know, 
this is, this is gross, first off. What does that smell, second off? And then I asked my uncle, why are you just letting them stand in all that mud? And he goes, that's not mud. Uh-oh. <laughs> and what I love about him is he's, he's always chewing on a pork chop bone, my uncle, standing there observing the pigs. I'm like, why are you doing that? He goes, Cause, so they remember who's boss. <laughs> and you're like, how can you even, th- I mean, like, I love bacon. I love bacon. But it wavered on that particular day. It wavered on that particular day. Because, I mean, but of course, once you're presented with pork, right, that night we sit down and, of course, every day of this, this guy's, my uncle's house, they eat pork chops with bacon on top of it and bacon bits on top of it. But the smell of, I mean, a few hundred pigs is awful. 2,000 pigs I can, I can hardly imagine. Um, and pigs are wild, weird creatures. Uh, the kids love to tell a story about we were at the fair and we're in the pig barn, and I, and I, and I lean down to this one pig and I just say, bacon. And the pig starts freaking out. And then all the pigs start freaking out. And the classes went running because we excited like a riot in the pig section. And, and like that many pigs, it was, uh, the sound is extremely unpleasant. 2,000 of them screaming down a hill would just, I can't even imagine the sound. So here the demoniac is, right? Totally unfit for society, living in, in the tombs, out by what? The dead bodies and the pigs. Because nobody, everybody loves to eat bacon, but nobody wants to see how sausage is made, right? Nobody wants to see how the pigs are raised. This man, this demoniac, is a one-man wrecking crew. He breaks chains, he breaks shackles, he attacks people, he goes around at night screaming his head off, cutting himself with stones. Because why? Well, the guy's got a legion of demons inside of him, and he would most likely rather die than have the legion of demons inside of him. Right? He, he wants to end his, nobody can help him. He can't hurt himself enough. Other people can't control him. And so just think of the guy's existence. Think of the despair. He's naked running around shrieking at night. The attitude and the actions of the people of the town were an added cruelty based on popular misunderstanding. But ultimate responsibility for the wretchedness of the man and the brutal treatment he had endured rested with the demons and the demons alone. In the New Testament, demonized individuals are victims. Never once do you hear Jesus tell them to repent. Never once. Now, he tells a lot of people to repent, a lot of people who don't even think they need to repent, but he never tells the demon-possessed people to repent. He delivers them. He doesn't say, turn to God. After he delivers them, he says, turn to God. But it's never a, a matter of what they've done. It's, it's always a matter of, of being delivered. This world in which we live in is fallen, and there are forces that are dark who hate us. And what they, what they ultimately want is to make this man, who is in, 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 was created in the image of God, to look not like God. Because God lives in society. God doesn't have to be bound. God doesn't have to be chained. The people, his people, the, thing, the people he created, his creation is good, he says, very good. And what these demons want is they want to mar it. They want to destroy it. They hate the image of God, and they can't get at God, so they go after his image. This is how it works. It's, we, we see this in our own day. Man hates, the, hates God, and they can't reach up into heaven to touch him, and so it's easier to then attack the images of him. And, and, this, and the demons know this. They want him, right? This is what they do to, to all of us. 
This is why Jesus says, pray that you're not led into temptation. Because the temptation that we're led into is, is to lose our humanity, like this man has done. To treat one another the way that the, the townspeople are treating this guy. Right? If he's not really a person, he's just a demon. You can treat him any way you want. What this man needs, no one in the world can offer him. No one can help him. So now let's get to the conflict. Let's get to the conflict. The man has seen Jesus and immediately, immediately runs down and falls down at his feet. How does he know who he is? How does he know who he is? Well, the demoniac, the man, doesn't. The demons do. The demons recognize who he is immediately. For all we know, the guy sitting in the, in the door of his cave probably saw the storm suddenly go quiet the night before, and all the demons inside of him start getting very nervous because they can sense that something is, co- is drawing near that is more powerful than them. It, and it's amazing that they, he runs out, and the first thing the demons want is mercy. They're begging for mercy. They know the alternative. The alternative is to just be cast out into outer darkness, they say. Now, there's a great deal here that I'm not going to get into. What does it mean that a, a demon is thrown into outer darkness? I'm gonna, we're just going to let that one sit for a minute. What does that mean? Are they, in a sense, ever utterly destroyed? That's a good question. No. The Bible says that they will reside in hell, burning in hellfire forever. So the outer darkness is, is, is not creation. They want to stay in creation. In the very beginning, the world was dark and and void, and there was nothing, and God made creation. And what they don't want is to go out of creation. right? And, and, And so they're begging him, they're begging him, please be merciful to us. In the name of God, be merciful to us. But that's not the only weird sort of thing that they're saying. They also, as I've pointed out before, attempt to use his name. They, they, they invoke his name. They invoke a title for him. And because the reason is, is that names have power. And if you use the name of someone, you have power over them. Now, I've, I've, this is very mysterious as well. It, it's why Jesus asks what their names are. He wants to know what their names are. Because when you, you have the name of someone, you have the identity of someone, when you haven't figured out who they are, that gives you a great, great deal of knowledge. And knowledge is power. You know their weaknesses. You know their strengths. You know what they can do, what they can't do. But what, what does Jesus do? Does Jesus cower back? He's like, oh, don't say my name out loud. He doesn't even tell him to be quiet. In fact, the first thing the demons say are in response to what Jesus has already said because he sees it and he just says, get out of the guy. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean get out? Get out where? Not the outer darkness, please. <laughs> the last time we saw the disciples, they were in the boat and they're saying, who is this? His own people. Who is this guy? Look at this guy who just said, shut up to the storm, and the storm stops immediately. These demons see him, and they know immediately who he is, and they know exactly what the, right? They know to be afraid. They know that they should bow down. They know that he is the Holy One of God. And they are terrified. Look at, look at what goodness comes here, and these evil demons who are, what they're doing to this man, and, and how the searing heat of fear comes upon them as soon as Jesus comes near. His enemies, are, 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 they just can't even handle having him come near them. They're so terrified. 
Now, there's this interaction that goes back and forth. And Jesus is very nonchalant about the whole thing. He's not worried. He's not afraid. He's not even. He's not worried that the guy's going to make him unclean. He's not worried what these demons are going to do. And and it's not like Jesus is like, hey Peter, quick, get a rope. He just walks up to the guy. He's not afraid. They're afraid. So who's the one man army? Legion or Jesus? Who's the one man army that you should be afraid of? Jesus asks the demons what their names are, and they don't say what their names are. They use a Latin term for a military unit. They're trying to frighten Jesus. <laughs> They're trying to frighten him. Oh, so what's your name, Bob? No, they don't say their name. They say, we're a legion. Oh, oh, a legion. Oh, I better go back to the boat and hide amongst the, go back on my cushion. They think he's going to quake in his boots. Now, a military term like this it's important to know, it's 6,000 troops is how big a legion is. Now, what's funny is there's 2,000 pigs. So are they a full legion? No. Even here, and they're in an attempt to intimidate Jesus, they're not even telling the truth. But, but for us, right? okay, all right, well, that's, they're liars, we get it, but it's still 2,000 of them. I mean, when, when, when Jesus goes into the desert, to confront Satan, it's just Satan. This is a th- thousands, thousands of evil spirits. What's he going to do? How does he react? He's not afraid. Who's the one-man wrecking crew? <laughs> not this guy. This guy's nothing. right? This guy, the strength that he has from these legion of demons, these demons themselves, are nothing compared to the power of one word from Jesus. And I love this. They're begging him, begging him. He's not saying, hey, do this and do that. He initially, he starts the conflict. He comes up there. He's talking to them, and he's waiting for them to beg him, right? Tell us what you want us to do. <laughs> They're terrified of him. He doesn't even have to come up with a plan. He's just waiting for them to destroy themselves. Think about that. He's waiting for them to destroy themselves because he understands their nature better than they do. They're like, well, um, okay, not the outer darkness. We're, we, we clearly can't stay in this guy because you're here and you're con- confronting us. Okay, so send us into the pigs. And then they go into the pigs, and what happens immediately to the pigs? Well, the pigs all run down into the sea and drown themselves because the intent of possessing something and the nature that they have is to destroy God's creation. So immediately, as soon as they go into the pigs, pigs who don't, right, they're considered one of the smartest animals. They're still not as, strong, as strong-willed as a man because they go into them and their intent all along is to destroy the thing they inhabit and the thing they're inhabiting runs down the hill and drowns itself in the sea. And it's like, well, there you go. Jesus, what does he have to do besides just give him permission? Oh, okay, that's what you want to do? All right, go into the pigs. And then they're all gone. So, <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Jesus is, is cunning. Jesus is clever. Jesus is, I, I love it, he's the swashbuckling king. He, is not, he, he doesn't worry at all about this. There are elaborate processes for casting out demons. The, the Egyptians, who were considered very wise, had this like 18-part 
uh, you had to know the name of the demon and you had to light these certain candles and you had to draw these certain pictures. And there was all this, they found papyri now of the elaborate processes back in those days that you would have to cast a demon out of something. Jesus just says, okay, that's it. It doesn't matter what their name is. He's just granting their request. Oh, you want to destroy yourselves and the pigs? Have at it. Now, <laughs> imagine you're standing there, and you're the herdsman, and, 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 and you see this, you hear, you hear the howling, you see the exchange, you're not really sure what's going on, and then all of your pigs take a mad dash down into the sea. Uh, yeah, I'd run. Like, I don't even know what's going on here, but it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And so they run away. They run away. And they go and because they're herdsmen, they don't own the pigs. They're just w- looking out for the pigs. They go and they tell the owners, well, okay, now, right? Now, if we go back to the misunderstood metaphors from the beginning, okay, now I see Jesus is stirring it up here. He's coming into their land. He's absolutely destroyed the economy of this area, by the way. He's terrified everyone. And so now, now is the time, isn't it? This is when he's going to take it to these guys. So there's a little mystery here. What are these townspeople going to do? Some people come to Jesus with all their lepers and all their sick and say, heal them. Right? Well, these people hate the Jews. The Jews, This Jew has come in here and has destroyed because he's all hoity-toity about his ritualistic eating. He's destroyed all of our pigs. And now we're going to go out there we're going to make him pay. Okay, but then they go out there and what do they see? The guy that no one could control is sitting at Jesus' feet. And they, don't, they can hardly recognize him, and that fills them with more terror. Well, the guy, right, the strong man, if you bind the strong man and plunder his house, what does that make you? What does that make you? Jesus, I mean, this is an example of Jesus has already taught them what he's doing, and he's living it out now. He's living it out. Oh, this guy who lived in the, he was the one terrorizing this area. Nobody wanted to go near him, and now he's sitting like a docile little baby at my feet. He's got clothes on. He's chopping wood for me. We're just hanging out here on the, on the coast. That would be more terrifying, more terrifying than the story about the pigs. And so the townspeople are like, please, just get out of here. Please just leave. We're, I, I'm done with this. They don't want to know more. They don't want to, they, right? They're, they're, they're so angry about the pigs. They're so terrified. They're not even like, hey, look at what they did. Look what he did for that guy. Look, he healed him. Let's have a party. Is it, let's go down. The pigs, I'm sure, are still just floating there on top of the water. Let's go grab one and roast it, and let's have a party, because look at what he's done for this guy. No, they're just, please, get out of here. Leave. Now, why, did, why, would, why would Jesus do that? Couldn't he have healed this guy without destroying all their pigs? Why is Jesus going around like such a, a big meanie? Right? What did these pig farmers ever do to him? What did the pig farmers ever do to him? What are all these townspeople? What do they ever do? They're lost in darkness, just like the demoniac was. So, so why would he come and do something so nasty to them? He doesn't explain. He says, well, okay, you guys want me to leave? All right. He gets back in the boat. There's the pneumonia. He says, please, please, take me with you. Take me with you. Let me follow you. Let me be your disciple. 
She says, no, nope. What I want you to do is I want you to go home and I want you to tell everyone about the mercy of God. The mercy of God. He doesn't say go home and tell everyone about me. He says, go home and tell them what has happened to you and that God has been merciful to you. And so in this dark land now, this land that has no synagogue, this land that has no temple, this land that is full of unbelievers, has one man, one man who's going to go now and preach the good news. The first Gentile, or the first apostles of the Gentiles is this guy. He's not like, okay, John, Peter, you guys are well trained. You guys have been following me now. You guys go with him. Help him out. No, he does one thing for this guy and the guy is ready to go because that's all that you need to tell people about. What has God done for you? What has God done for you? That's the message. The message is the messenger. That's what I love about the gospel. When I go and I'm telling people about, I'm the message because I know exactly what it's like in a sense to be this demoniac. I even have a story where I ran into two friends not long after I became a Christian, and they, they thought I was pretending to be Mike. They didn't even recognize me. Now, it's not just because I had gotten fat. <laughs> right? I'd always had a beard. They literally, they, they were stunned, and they, they were like, what happened to you? We don't even recognize you. <laughs> the, the change that happens to this guy. But, but how, how, right? Jesus doesn't leave him with, with any kind of support system. He just says, go and tell everyone what I have done for you. Okay. So let's back up now. I've explained the story. Has anyone figured out what it's about yet? There's a couple of important things I'm going to point out before we finally bring this baby home, and it's this. In this story, there's a number of characters. Jesus is one of them. Then there are three other characters. The man, the demoniac, the demoniac, the legion, and the townspeople. Legion makes a request of God and he grants it. (laughs) The townspeople make a request of God and he grants it. The man who he saved, who wants nothing but to be with him, makes a request of Jesus and he denies him. Now, how often have you been begging God, begging him, and you, you, you get a no, and you get a no, and you get a no, and you look around, and you see everybody else who, who has a desire seems to get their way. Evil people. The, the two groups, who, right, the legion and the townspeople who don't want anything to do with Jesus, he's granting their desires, and he's saying no to his follower. What kind of topsy-turvy thing is this? What is going on? Oh, there's another character, though. There's another character, and I'm with you because I didn't even, it just suddenly came to me, like, actually, there's somebody else here in this story. If you go to chapter 5, verse 1, what is the first word? They. They. Well, who's the they? Well, it's all of his followers. All the followers got out of the boat. Where, what, where were they during this whole story? Now, more than that, if you go back, when do they ever shut up? <laughs> when do they ever stay quiet? Jesus is doing things, and, and the disciples are always like, Jesus, what are you, why, are you telling, why are you talking to them in parables? What are you doing? Jesus, wake up. There's a storm. Jesus quiets the storm. They're like, whoa, 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 who is this? They won't, they're always 
commenting all along on what Jesus does. But in this story, they don't say a word. Nothing. And I'm with them. I'm with them 100%. Because why would God, why would Jesus say, okay, we're going to get in the boat and you're going to row me across at night through a storm that nearly drowns everybody. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get out of the boat and I and, and I'm going to totally ruin the economy of this area and terrify everybody just to save one guy that I don't take with me. I'm with you, disciples. What is this? What is going on here? Because this is what, this is what Jesus is doing, what God does. We're sitting here. We're looking around our lives. We're looking around this country. We're looking around the state of the church. And how many of you guys are just sort of silent? dumbfounded into silence. It doesn't make any sense. This guy is a wrecking crew. We thought, I mean, we were terrified of the storm. He saves us from the storm. His saving us from the storm was more terrifying than the storm. We we come to this place, and, and, and this guy, he delivers him, and his word of deliverance for him is even more terrifying than what happened last night, just last night. These guys haven't even wiped the sleep out of their eyes. They were all terrified, and they're still terrified. Why would Jesus do this to them? That's my question. Why, why, would he, why is he putting them through all of this? What's the point? What's the point? <clears throat> Jesus has come to a dark place, and he is casting seeds all over the place. And some of the seeds have been received by people the farmers who are more concerned about their welfare, their, their physical and financial welfare, than they are about the word of God. There is some soil that the seed has gone into, and it's hard. They're like, no, we don't, there's, there's no room for you here. And yet there's this other soil where the seed has gone in, and it's taken root. And Jesus says, listen, don't take this light that I've given you and put it under a bed. Go home and lift it up. And you're like, well, pff, one guy? One guy in this dark land? It's like, a, it's like planting a mustard seed. Hmm. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I, ah. Ah. This is why he is so confused about their confusion. This is why he's so confused about our confusion. He told them what the kingdom of heaven was like, and now he's doing it, and they don't like it. They don't like it one bit. Not only do they not like it one bit, it's terrifying what he's doing. But he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Now, this story doesn't end here. See, this Mark is a clever man. He is a clever, clever man. And he knows how, he knows how little faith he has. He knows how little faith the disciples have. He knows how little faith we have. Because those cute stories from chapter 4, this doesn't look like that at all. This isn't at all what I thought he would be look like in real life. Look at, he is a one-man wrecking crew. He is not safe. Turn with me, though, to chapter 7. I was working ahead, figuring out what I'm going to be doing. Chapter 7, go to chapter 7, verse 31. And I, I came across this section... And I thought, I don't understand how this fits in with everything else that's going on in chapter 7 and 8. I don't understand. This is going to be a weird sermon. 
And you know what I realized? I read one word, and I realized what this, this section is actually about. From verse 31 to the end of 7. Let me read it for you. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. That's what did it. Wait, he, he went back. He went back. And, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him, begged him to lay hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd, privately he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What happened to the angry crowds? What, what happens when you plant a mustard seed? The bush that grows up is bigger than anything that you could possibly imagine, and people come from all over to, to take rest in its shade. So how often have you been the pig farmers? How often have you been the disciples standing on the shore thinking, what, in, what are you doing? And what Mark wants us to see, right, and he doesn't just give it to us. He doesn't say, oh, and then he came back a couple weeks later, and it turns out everything he said about planting fields worked out exactly how he said it was going to. He leaves everybody in suspense because God leaves everyone in suspense. And what you see here is that the reason everyone should have just trusted him and followed him and obeyed him and went to him and just praised him is because his word does not come back empty. He is a one-man wrecking crew. He is a one-man wrecking crew of every single kingdom that is not his. He will destroy yours. He will destroy mine. He will destroy this nation's. He will destroy evangelicals' false kingdom. He will wreck every single kingdom, and we will be standing there wondering, what is he doing? And what is he doing is he is building his. And it, it's not. It, it's in his time, in his way, to the glory of his name. He transforms this crowd through all of these events. All of these people who want nothing to do with him, he's there now, and not only do they want something to do with him, they see what he's doing is good. I know, I know that come Tuesday, we're going to be sitting in our homes and we're going to feel like the pig farmers. We're going to feel like the townspeople. We're... Our lives and the circumstances of them and the culture in which we live and our hopes and our desires are going to just be thwarted time and time again. And we're going to be full of anxiety. And like the demon-possessed man, we're going to be tormented and we're going to be attacked and we're going to be pursued and we're going to feel hunted. And what Jesus wants is not for us to understand completely and perfectly what is going on. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to fall down at his feet. He wants us to obey him in the tiny little things that he's given us to do every day. And, and by doing that, by doing that, his kingdom comes. You put the seed in the ground, night and day, you, you go about your business, and the seed does what the seed does. His word doesn't come back empty. This story is so that you will believe, that you will believe these things in your own life. He, he is a mysterious, mysterious God. And he is often a somewhat scary one. 
And, and the circumstances of following him are, is full of danger, fraught with danger. It must be because he tells you to lay your life down, right? Die to yourself to come and follow me. That, there's danger in that command. But what he proves over and over and over again, and we can look at stories like this, is that he knows what he's doing. And, and what he's doing is saving the world. And what he's doing is good and right. And we fall down before him and we worship him. That's the point of the story. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We pray, Lord God, that we would have faith, that we would stand strong on the rock of our salvation. So often, Lord God, the things that your providences and your, the things that you do in this world are confusing and even frightening. But we pray, Lord God, that we know that in your word, it is sufficient for us to comprehend what you're doing. Not in every specific detail, but that what your plan is, is bigger than us. What your, what your will is, is not ours, and that your will is perfect and good, and that it will come about and it will be beautiful. Father, we're full of anxiety, we're full of self-will, and we pray, Lord God, that through stories like this, that you would, as the good shepherd, guide, comfort, protect. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.